0: Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 83. I'm going to put a slight uh, apology in here. Um, My voice sounds a wee bit rustic than normal. Um, That is because I've been in a concert over the week with Lower Nifthdale Young Farmers. We had a great time doing 999 What's Your Emergency? And, uh, yeah, I couldn't tell you enough how much to get involved uh, if if you want to meet new people in your area and learn more about food in that place. Um, It's been great fun. But that's not why we're here. We're here because we have, as I always say, an interesting guest, but um, I think on the R2 cast, this guest will be the person who has had the biggest following that I'm aware of to date, anyway, we have Charles Dowding. Charles, would you like to say hello?
1: Hello, yeah, nice to meet you, Wallace, and uh, yeah, pleasure to be here. Just before we get started
2: with another episode of the R2 cast, I'd like to thank our primary sponsors, Aplan Rural. Aplan Rural are heavily involved on the social media scene in the ag space with 120,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories. They also post to their rural community blog with further stories about these people in the industry. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry such as Myself, so thank you to plan Rural for that.
0: It is a pleasure to have you on, and very much looking forward to it, as I do most podcasts. But over the last maybe few, maybe about ten, I've really sort of jumped out of the comfort zone. Before it was always sort of um, looking at the agricultural side of food production, and I always sort of it was always people in food and farming. Um, but I, when I jumped into the, the the away from agriculture, it wasn't as, as often. I've been starting to do it a lot more, and I'm learning a lot. Um, but for those of you listening, when I'm speaking to someone like Charles, I might look a wee bit silly here and there. So I apologise in advance for that. Um, if you're enjoying the R2Cast, be sure to check out uh, Rural uh, to Kitchen on Facebook and Instagram. Um, uh, and also check out the, the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get them last, or not last week. On Monday, we would have had the Dumfries and Galloway Food Partnership. We're looking at sort of bringing people from all walks of food production uh, together and learn about different methods. So kind of what I do at R2K. And then next week, we'll have someone from Zimbabwe, Blythe Aitken, who I actually went to uni with, but didn't know somehow, which is quite strange. Um, But she's based in Zimbabwe and is an agronomist uh, focusing mainly on blueberries. So that'll be another interesting uh, topic there. But today, we're here to talk to, to talk to Charles. Charles could you tell us a bit about your background were you was was food production something you were around as a kid was was it horticulture was agriculture if it was
1: yeah it was dairy farming mainly uh but also mixed farming my father had a nearly thousand acre dairy farm six miles Mm -hmm. up the road from here in fact which my elder brother then took on and (laughs) my father was quite old when I was born he was 55 actually Uh, he'd met my mother who'd been in the land army during the war world war ii and at the time she was 18 he was 34 and he proposed to her then i think and she declined and said she's too young anyway they, they finally got together <laughs> in 1955 about four years before i was born and so i had that background very strongly in me of growing up on a farm but my father was pretty determined that i wouldn't be a farmer he wanted my older brothers to do it and so i was i actually went to Cambridge university and i was supposed to be someone who was going to have a glittering career, you know, somewhere else. Okay. <laughs> something kept pulling me back to the land. And, and p- partly that was um, getting interested in nutrition through becoming a vegetarian. I read a book about animal rights and I in- instantly became vegetarian. That was in 1979 when not many people were. So my father said, why are you eating like a rabbit? <laughs> and yeah, it was, you know, I, I kind of marked myself out already as someone a bit different and and that's always have been and because then I got interested in organic and so I was organic market gardener from 1982 when not many people were doing it and so that again was something a bit challenging but I was also no dig from the beginning but not really talking about it because in the 80s you know there wasn't that much interest in soil There's nothing like it is now it's great now <laughs> I'm really loving the the interest in in like soil biology, but when I started out, the, the books were saying things like you know and this was scientists writing they were saying the uh, mycorrhizal network does not relate to vegetable growing, so vegetable roots do not use mycorrhizal networks. That was stated as a scientific fact, okay. and I wanted them to. <laughs> I was discouraged, but you know that that's the kind of background I was in there, and um yeah, it went from there. I started off with an acre and a half market garden, all handwork, no tractors. And I've always found myself felt felt more gardener horticulture than farmer, which I don't think there should be the division there is, but there is a division, you can't deny it. And uh, because I span both, because my family are farming, agriculture, if you like, and I'm more market gardening, gardening now more, because I get getting smaller scales I get older. And I'm also talking to a much bigger audience. You noted my following is huge. And a lot of them are gardeners because I want to empower, enable, thousands, millions of people uh, Mm -hmm. at that level, rather than hundreds, say, of bigger operations.
0: No, absolutely. And you mentioned that it it should be more a collective, you know, it's sort of agriculture, horticulture, and and it's food production, you know, that's what it should come under, under, um, the different forms of that. And it's quite interesting sort of working at a a college that that's based on food production in rural sectors and stuff like that, and you see that divide. Notably, like my my masters was food security, so I'm interested in the food side. Oh, yeah. um, very relevant now, yeah. Oh well, very. I mean, I think it's one of those terms we hear all the time, and everyone's like, "What does this mean? Is this padlocking your <laughs> fridge? Like, what does this? You know?" Um, but uh, not really knowing what what it actually means. But yeah, so that was always what I was really interested in. Obviously, I'm more focused on the agriculture side, yeah. but there's such a divide, and
1: it's, oh, it's one. Last week I was at the, uh, the Oxford Real Farming Conference and happening at the same time was the Oxford Farming Conference. You know, that's like chalk and cheese. And we, we'd go out like at, at lunchtime to get a bit of food and you, you could see the guys from the, the Oxford Farming Conference, they all dressed differently as well. <laughs> you know, tweed jackets and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, the, the, I could see they were more the big landowners and uh, the real farming conference was more the, the small scale. Although there was a bit of both, actually. That, that Those are two worlds that I wish would meet more. Uh, you but know, th- th- be a strength.
0: Yeah, the, the issue is it, it never made sense to me that they were on at the exact same time. I always mm. felt like that created a rivalry. It's like pointless in the chase. You know, at the same time, same yeah. thing.
1: Not the same but, no, I, I, it, Well, I think it's because when they, ah, what was their name? <laughs> it was um, the professor and his wife. Uh, she's called West. And um, anyway, they started it as fringe movement, if you like, you know. And it was a bit of a statement. Yeah. And it was very small 14 years ago, and it's been grown so big that I think you're right now. It's got to the point where they should not be at the same time because then people could <laughs> go to. At least. Yeah,
0: and there's there's interest from both. I mean, the metaphor. I've never been to yeah. either. I was supposed to yeah. go last year and I went online because of COVID and whatever. But the yeah. amount of folks head down to both is, is good. But if it was separate, right. then I'd be seeing more yeah. yeah. working together. Um, so quite a lot to unpick there, Charles, with a few things to cover. You, you came from from dairy farming and uh, it was quite clear that that, that uh, the brother your brother was going to take that on. Um was there ever a stage when you were like, I want to take this on, or was was the dairy side just
1: never really clicking with yourself? Yeah, no, never. I I don't really relate to cows very well. (laughs) (laughs) I did, I actually had a a spell, I kind of threw it all in 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 1991 and and moved to France for a while and had a small farm out there and I did keep a few cows, not very well. I'm much more uh, comfortable with with crops and I like small scale work, but that's my thing. I don't really like using machinery. And so, yeah, I'm I'm intensive market (laughs) garden. Right, Okay. that makes sense,
0: that makes sense. And you, you... you said you went to Cambridge, well, you're going to Cambridge and, and that was going to be the, the,
1: the plan then. What was it you looked at where you studied there? I studied geography. I've never studied agricultural farming or anything related to soil or cropping. And actually, I'm grateful for that because okay. it gave me a free, a freer mind, I feel. And, you know, I'm kind of a person who questions things and I still am. And when I started growing, for example, I'd noticed that most organic market gardeners, the main thing they were growing was weeds. And I didn't want to be in that situation. I could see how stressed it were and how difficult it was making life. So I was looking at ways to have fewer weeds and that led me to mulching. I first of all bought some old hay, much to my father's disgust. And then I was mulching with straw, which he gave me actually, uh, you know, so I was trying a lot of things. And then I, with no dig, I discovered that you get many fewer weeds anyway. So it, it's been a process of discovery as well as cropping. <laughs> We'll, um, we'll, we'll get to No Dig at a point. It's
0: probably probably the main reason I want to talk to you. It's, it's what you think when you hear your name. um Or when you hear No Dig, you think of your name. You know, there's that sort of... That sort right. of, it, it, It's just the way... It's, I, the first time I'd ever heard of you was when I joined... Um, There's a group on Aaron I mentioned I was from called Aaron Eco Savvy. And they, they're they sort of looking at... They've got some pioneer projects. They've got small gaps where farmers have given this sort of community group some, some ground. Um, right. And and they're they're trialing different different methods. And no dig's certainly one of them. And I was like, No dig, what's that? And I'm under i very much aware of 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 no tell. Is it the same thing? And you know, right. sort of into that. So that was where I first heard of you. So shout out to Jessica Wallace for, for that. But that'd be a good few years ago now. But uh, you mentioned you became vegetarian, was it 1979? Yep. Um yeah, that that would be you, you mentioned it wasn't normal, it was quite rare at the time. What? Did, did, did that come with challenges at the time obviously you mentioned your dad saying, you know but in general did it come with challenges
1: yeah it, it marked me out as someone not quite in the main mix okay um, you know it's, it kind of puts you on the edge doing anything unusual uh you've got to have a bit of character to sort of not you know it's, it's much easier to just be like everyone else isn't it you know in, in yeah. It helped me to sort of just get used to that idea a bit Um, and then being organic, you know, like I say in the 80s, not many people were. I I remember in the 80s being really grateful to Prince Charles, actually, because he was one of the first people of the establishment, shall we say, who kind of stuck his neck out a bit and said, you know, organic makes sense, actually. And, and, you know, all the um, universities and places were saying, no, we need more food production. Um, you know, I understood why they were saying that. I, it was, World War II was still fresh in people's minds, including my father. You know, he hated it because he reckoned that I was just losing yield and, and not using fertiliser, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's all quite different. And mention losing yield there. What, what, how does organic um, production compare to non-organic? <clears throat> well, I mean, I would say, actually, potentially you get more food. The, the, the problem is now with pricing that and you know the sustainable farm trust has done a lot of work on this with patrick holden for example that food is not correctly priced so in in what i call chemically produced food there's hidden costs that are not being accounted for and the pollution caused by say fertilizers leaching pesticides um leaching into the water and all that kind of thing which has to be cleaned up at some point someone's Mm -hmm. got to pay for that that's not accounted in, in the food cost so it looks cheap uh, chemical food, I call it. It looks cheap, but organic food actually in real terms, in real terms, real time is cheaper. It's not a niche market at all. And it, it's it been marginalized wrongly by this false accounting method and also by the language. You know, it's another really, if you think about it, it makes no sense. I For me, it makes no sense to call Uh, People who use synthetic chemicals, conventional farmers, but that's the language which is accepted. And words are powerful. And conventional, if you look it up in the dictionary, means normal and natural. And I don't think it's normal and natural to spray Roundup on fields or use pyrolid weed killers, for example, or even artificial fertilizers, dare I say it. Because, you know, even Rothamsted now is saying that um, artificial fertilizer nitrogen is damaging soil, microbes. soil life. Well, I mean, I've, I've said this. Exact thing, and at work.
0: In fairness, it's always quite good to have that chat with students and really that right. are sort of all saying, yeah. especially ag students. And you know, I was an ag student, and I was against everything as as we are, and we start, and then you okay. sort of open <laughs> rise to everything. And um, then, the, I was going to say, I do not know if you are going to mention what conventional means. It's not natural. It is, however, now normal, which is wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, but, that, you yeah. Know, it, but, you the, know, I've said it to Patrick as well when he was director of Soul Association, in the late 80s early 90s he shouldn't be using that word for, for, for the other camp so to speak and he said well yeah but if we if we call them chemical farmers they're not going to like it and then they won't talk to us anymore you know he wants to keep the dialogue open i could see that but i've been in this game long enough now i'm <coughs> 64 nearly, that i can see things have not really changed in my lifetime despite everybody's great ideas and if we don't change soon there's going to be so much pollution you know, look at the insect calamity at the moment. Uh, the disappearance of insects it's much more shocking, I think, than, than is even being realized. And that you know, that's going to be hard to reverse. So soon we we need to take a closer look at what, what we're doing and, and call things out as they are. And and uh, you know, I'm not saying anybody's wrong here because that, that doesn't get you into a useful dialogue for sure. But but I think we need to be more clear about what is happening. I, th- I think that's true. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um for listeners
0: we've got listeners that are 15 16 we've got listeners that are that are over 65 um and and it's quite interesting watching what they're interested in watching um what is organic now organic is a defined system but what 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 you've chosen organic you've chosen to go down that route most part for years now um what what's the difference between that and just for the sake of this discussion
1: conventional farming well yeah it's in a way you've got to define the word first and and the, the, the definition for me has been too loose until recently it's mm-hmm. it became when i was starting out the def, the definition of organic for most people meant no synthetic chemicals which actually is a very negative way of looking at because it, it's it's just piling on the, the no <laughs> a bit like no dude but that's like there's a bit more to it yeah. <laughs> so um it's much more for me organic is about embracing like life of the soil when the Soil Association was founded in 1946. They talked a lot about the mycorrhizae and fungi and so on, all that kind of thing. People at Albert had the biome. That was in the language in the 40s. Then it got forgotten in the late 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. And it's only recently come back. So organic is very much about favoring soil life, I would say. And from that springs everything else that is good for the planet.
0: But it's the basis for what everything is. It's it's what everything begins
1: with. Yeah. I mean, I'm so encouraged now. I hear that a lot. People people are realising, and so we're in a good place there, at least. It's it's
0: always quite funny because I mean, I've I've done this podcast with with loads of people now, and and I know there's sometimes my colleagues will listen, and I'm not the soil person, right? I'm not I understand the point, but it's not, right. not this thing I focused on. Um, and uh, it's always quite interesting when we talk about well, went into soil science there. They're like, well, let's stop pretending you know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, I really have to stop this because I've, I learned a lot from from, from people like yourself and, and other folks we've had on before. Um, you, we've mentioned no dig as we go, mm-hmm. and, and as I said, it was the reason I sort of wanted to get in touch. And it it sounds very simple. It sounds very yeah. simple, and maybe it is very simple. But I'm going to guess that that's not, and especially. The fact you started out doing no dig, but maybe not realizing it was a thing. Can you tell us what no dig is, Charles, from 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 the ground up, everything that it involves, and why it's it's something that's pretty much defined your life now?
1: Yeah, okay. It it is simple. You're absolutely right. It's about leaving the soil alone as much as possible. So then, like you know, I'll say that in a video on YouTube, and I'll get some question. It's always fascinating in the comments. I say, well, oh, this very Well, how do you plant a tree? You know, it's like oh, you dig a hole, actually. <laughs> You know, it's not a religion. It's not like you must not dig, you know, that kind of thing. But it's just, you know, being practical about it, disturbing the soil as little as possible in the recognition that soil has so much to give us, soil life in particular. So that's the other aspect is looking after soil life. And that's where the surface mulching with organic matter comes from or comes in. So for vegetable growing, I find it's best to use compost. You know, I've tried a lot of undecomposed mulches like hay, straw and so on. They tend to encourage slugs and that's what we don't want for vegetables. <laughs> so uh, what I do is I put on every year around an inch and I'm measuring that after it's settled a bit. It's always hard using these measurements because how do you measure the depth of compost? You know, you put it on and it's all loose and fluffy. It measures more than when it's been rained on for a week. So that's my measurement after the rain. So about an inch and two and a half centimeters and then in the on pathways my beds are about four foot 1.2 meters on pathways of of 16 centimeters, 40 inches. Is that right? No, 16 inches, 40 centimetres. I'm putting on about the same depth of well-rotted wood chip. With the aim that the soil is always covered. You know, this is what we hear a lot now with regen uh, farming. Soil is always covered uh, in in a farming no-till situation, more likely to be with cover crops and that kind of thing. But in the garden situation, that doesn't always work. That's one of the differences between gardening and farming. You know, the actual practicalities of how you, you run it uh, month by month but the underlying principle is very much the same looking after the soil with with either a living or a decomposing mulch and planting uh, through and, and into the soil um, with, through that and for 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 those of us
0: including myself that really don't know about the garden inside my mum will be listening to this she'll absolutely love this podcast she's like Wallace stop embarrassing yourself I'm gonna ask you anything um, right. we know what mulches are but what are mulches actually offering what
1: are they offering um, the soil? No, well, I mean a mulch is anything on the surface, and I mean, it's a good question because if we're not careful, we get into using language and that kind of exclude people who don't know what you're talking about. So a mulch <laughs> is anything on top, and it could be plastic. You know, um, that plastic is a mulch. It just happens to be a non-organic synthetic mulch, and I use it very occasionally if I've got a big weed problem, like masses of bindweed or something like that. You put the plastic on for half a year or even a year and that doesn't get rid of it, but it weakens it so much that you're in a situation where you can control it the following year using a trowel to lever out the regrowth of bindweed. I can get rid of bindweed in two years, I've done that several times. With digging I think that's very difficult because when you, this is a big feature of no-dig, when you don't disturb the soil, the soil doesn't have the same need to grow weeds. How does one explain that? I, you can go down many rows. I like to see a soil <laughs> as a living organism, and, and a living organisms like us, when we're disturbed, we need to recover. Uh, how does soil recover? Well, the wording is very apt. It's literally, soil recovers and by growing weeds. And around here, farmers say, chickweed follows the rotator. Well, blow me down. I mean, I've seen that, <laughs> it's certainly true. I've <laughs> uh, you know, I've done all this in, in, in my youth. And um, that's, be- I think it's because rotovating really damages the soil, you know, chops it up into little pieces. That is so unnatural and, and horrible. And when I started organic growing, most organic growers were using rotovators a lot because they didn't have other means of weed control at the time. But you rotovate, then you get all these weeds and chickweed binds the soil together. So, that you, know, you know, I'm sure anybody who's tried to pull chickweeds out much, you know, the roots are really wiry and tough and they're, they're rebinding the soil, basically. So they're healing it. So with no dig, I find you, you don't get that. The soil doesn't need to do it. So, that, just going back to that plastic mulch, that's one use for it on difficult perennial weeds. We always dig out woody roots before starting. So, it would be brambles and any, any ivy we'd pull out, that kind of thing. Uh, everything else you can cover, including the tricky perennial weeds like even mare's tail, that's where, again where the plastic might come in. But mostly, I'm finding that perennial weeds like here, when I arrived at Home because 10 years ago, a lot of creeping buttercup, dandelion, and um, couch grass in places. And just using cardboard initially with some compost on top, 10, 15 centimetres, 4 to 6 inches, huge dose, but only as a one-off. Uh, very good weed control and straightened with a level of high fertility that makes the uh, market garden productive right from the beginning. Uh, it gives you pays pays itself back in economic terms actually very quickly. And then you've got long-term fertility from that and, and going forward you're using a much lower dose, which I think works out. It's 30 tonnes an acre maybe um i'm saying this in public now it's very dangerous because the police will be knocking on the door in the morning so i'm breaking the law um <laughs> i i think this is a big gray area that needs addressing um how come compost is put in the same legal framework as slurry which does leach nitrates into the water compost this is the whole point of compost and it's the whole point of organic work you're, you're adding organic matter where the nutrients are insoluble they're not washed out by rain and i can prove that every year because i put my compost on in December, often we're putting on November, December. One full-time guy helps me now. And when the compost goes on, it's washed washed through a lot, as it has been this winter. We've had like um, 10 inches of rain in the last six weeks. And so if the nutrients were soluble in water, they wouldn't be there anymore. But every year I get fantastic crops. And not only that, I get fantastic second crops. And you look at the garden in September, October, and all the brassicas we planted in summer, like Calabrese and purple sprouting, After beetroot and carrots and lettuce and spinach, with no extra compost applied in the summer, all of those second crops are looking really lush and brilliant. So, you know, it's living soil is holding on to its nutrients and nutrients are not synthetic and chemical. That's a big difference. They're not slurry either. So I hope someone heard that who who can change that crazy law.
2: (laughs) I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information on our primary sponsors, Aplan Rural. A-Plan offer bespoke cover for farms and estates, the UK over, and will give you tailored insurance for anything on the farm from your old workhorse tractor that's been around 20 years or a fancy new and exciting diversification.
0: <coughs> yeah, it's actually quite interesting about the folk listening to this. There's people in the NFU that are listening. There's people in the, the HDB that listen. So might be the right okay. person. Yeah, Excellent. yeah. <laughs> it's quite, quite, quite a strange,
1: uh, quite a... Uh, uh, a diverse listening group to the podcast but they are normally food based so yeah well for me uh, just to finish on that I, I think there was a misunderstanding when it was framed first legally you know by the uh, or what you know people who make these laws how how much do they actually know you know really and and even how much do does anybody know until recently or really understand about compost and how it works you know although it's been around a long time obviously millennia forever I think it's only recently, I'm particularly looking at the biology that, that we've come to understand more about how it works and how soil life works as well. I think um, you know,
0: policy, law, all that sort of thing is, is quite mm. often outlined by people that aren't experts. You know, it is yeah. That's maybe unfair to say in a lot of cases, but in some cases it is the case, definitely. Um, you mentioned also wood chip there,
1: Charles. What what,
0: mm. what role yeah. does wood chip play?
1: Uh, well, it's, I didn't used to use it, actually, but, you know, when I started in the 80s, nobody had, you had wood chip, it's quite a new thing, mm-hmm. that, you know, everyone chipping the wood, because they're moving away from bonfires and that kind of thing, it's brilliant. I actually got involved in giving a bit of advice to, um, in Waddesdon, to a farm, farm by um, Rothschilds. It was actually the kitchen garden where they were doing a lot of digging, out, and they've got no dig since then, and on the farm, I subsequently learned they had, they had a huge amount of woodland, and rather than burning the wood, <laughs> Uh, to tidy that or keep it tidy they they've they now compost it and putting it back on the soil so that woody, woody compost um, woody waste are brilliant for making compost in more long-term fungal manner which is what soil uh, massively cultivated soil is is lacking the most uh, here i'm not lacking it but uh, it's a way of maintaining or adding to fertility in pathways that we're walking on it gives a nice medium to walk on and the fungal decomposition happening is bringing fertility to the ground and it Horticultural terms, I'm a bit unusual or gardening terms probably more. I don't have wooden sides, for example, to the beds. So if there's any gardeners listening to this, you know, and you've got wooden sides, I'd urge you to look at taking them out because one thing, it's a waste of space. You know, wood doesn't grow plants (laughs) and you probably find slugs on the inside. So it reduces pests. But more than anything, it opens up. Uh, the roots in your beds to explore more easily and access the soil in the paths you know the past soil just because we walk on it is not compacted the big misunderstandings in the gardening world about that they keep being told their soil is compacted and they have to dig it you know it's like no you know firm a firm state is good that's how soil should be and plants can root into it and be, be strong well anchored and if so i want to keep my past soil fertile as much as my bed soil so that's what you oh oh
0: that, that's interesting i wouldn't have thought that so is that not because you're going to be using the path for growth but so that there's a so there's sort
1: of a a healthy soil throughout the whole area is that what you mean yeah yeah and it's you know it's part of the root network so like we see last summer in the dry weather it was really clearly visible that if the beds are running a long away from your line of sight and the plants on the edge of the bed on each side were noticeably bigger than the ones in the middle and I'm Sure, it's because they were just feeding into the path soil, particularly after showers of rain in July and August when it was really dry. We do water, but I can never really get on enough to make up the deficit. But you can see that the edge ones feeding into the path, they were bigger. Right? There we are. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I was right. gonna say you learn something every day. I've already learned like 48 things, but um, that's 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 the biggest one, uh, for sure. Um it's interesting. You you mentioned that uh, you know, soil's a living organism breaking it up that disrupts mm. within it causes problem in that sense yeah <laughs> Do you know i'm going to hugely embarrass myself here and thought i thought the reason for no dig was um now it's obviously going to be part of this uh sort of reducing that release of carbon but there's also the the side of the
1: soil health side as well um, well, well together though because you know carbon is you're absolutely right but carbon is the building block of soil life everything mm-hmm in pretty much it's it's carbon based organic matter you know all of that so it's all interlinked and and it's in a way it's which bit you focus on is what you can emphasize but the the whole thing is yes it's it's keeping the whole system all nice and working like a almost like a computer you know every little bit is important the more you can leave alone or encourage the the better it comes along and now
0: you've you mentioned that you know um Organic isn't strictly, no synthetic addition of chemical, that sort of thing. But you're obviously minimising that. Do you use any biological controls or
1: anything along those lines? Yeah, at the moment, one, I use um, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a soil bacteria. Uh was discovered in Germany in 1911, I believe. And it's unique for how it. it um, if caterpillars eat a leaf, it's been sprayed on, it disrupts their digestion process and they basically die because they can't digest food anymore but it only affects caterpillars. So of whatever uh, butterfly or moth it might be, and we only spray it on brassica leaves. You know, I'm not spraying it randomly everywhere. And we only do it from mid-July to mid-October, roughly, when the w- white butterflies are flying and, and moths uh, to reduce caterpillar damage. So yeah, I'm using a little bit of that. I, I don't use anything else actually, I just don't find it right. new. Is as, as caterpillars and, and uh, slugs your main two problems then? Yeah, insect-wise, uh, that's pretty much it. And it's only on brassicas, you know, and, and summer brassicas are that. So, you know, the winter brassicas at the moment, like the broccoli and the kale, they're not affected, obviously, by caterpillars. And slugs is potentially big. I talk about slugs a lot. We don't actually suffer much slug damage, but that's because, you know, I've, I've learned to set up the garden so there's minimum <laughs> habitat, no wooden sides to beds, no straw or hay mulches, just compost and a bit of well rotted wood chip. And there's basically nowhere there for them to hide. Plus, with no dig, you, you're allowing um, the, the natural predator balance. So, no dig soils, I reckon, uh, have higher proportions of beetles, which eat slugs. Okay. you know, corn, brown beetle, and carol beetles. Uh, we often find toads when we, we're picking lettuce leaves. You know, there's loads of them here, and they eat slugs, I believe, in slugs. So, you know, you just automatically, without consciously doing it, because nature does it for you. But that's why no dig, again, it takes it so many boxes without you even realizing, you know, it's, and it's, Kind of beautiful because it's no dig, so by definition, it's doing less. And and I think some people find that difficult. It's like, oh, it's lazy then, <laughs> you know. <but> no, <laughs> it's being clever, and you've got to be clever because I mean, all of us were under incredible time pressure. You know, market gardening do, does not make any money. Basically, um, you know, you pay your wage if you're lucky. So you you just got to keep finding ways to to save time and, and be more efficient.
0: So it, it's a it's a sad a sad comment that market garden doesn't make money. Um, <laughs> are you at the scale that you do or is it your other enterprises that allow you to do so trials?
1: yeah no don't. i'm at the scale i don't i mean i'm, I'm cropping a third of an acre right. uh, but there's two, two other things to what i'm doing is one is i'm doing a lot of um social media and trials work actually as well and that <laughs> so i'm not i'm not a pure market garden if if what i'm doing here on a third of an acre was purely to produce crops and to make money from that i reckon i could make a living but that's not what i'm trying to do but what what i noticed you know i talked to a lot of people in the, doing the similar thing you know it's really hard to, you know if you inherit a property that makes it a lot easier but if you've got rent and a mortgage to pay and that kind of thing wow oh boy i mean i'm, I'm paying a guy a wage um you know i pay him very full wage actually a 40 hour week and i'm very happy to do that and i can do that because i've subsidized my work through income from my writing i've written 14 books actually now on youtube i've got YouTube. that
0: written down i've got i've got to ask right.
1: <laughs> i do that
0: by <laughs> night <laughs> <Not really. laughs> that's, I mean, yeah, that's a commitment in itself um so what what i didn't realize you did trials what trials are? oh uh, well you...
1: that's so interesting that's one of my favorite bits actually about what i'm doing here so i've got two beds side by side one i'd still personally myself dig it every december and to about the depth of a spade 20 25 centimeters like 10 inches okay. and incorporate the compost at the bottom of each trench. And the bed next to it, which is the same width and size is 1.5 by five meters each bed uh, is simply no dig with the compost, same amount of compost on top. So the two beds have the same amount of compost. That's really key. Uh, you, you know, you're putting in the same amount of stuff and but one is dug the other is no dig. And then we crop exactly the same plants, plant at the same time, seeds, everything and harvest at the same time and record all the harvest. And I've been doing that here since uh, December, 2012 so 10 years of results are yeah. really interesting. I've got um, over the, well, last year, for example, we, we had from the dig bed, we had the impressive figure of 91 kilos of food. And that's only 1.5 by 5 meters, 5 feet wide, 60 feet long. So that's 91 kilos. The no dig bed gave one hundred and thirteen. Right. And that's a pretty consistent difference. Uh, over 10 years of adding up these figures, um, you can see them on my website if, if you click under advice and, and um, there's a, a drop-down and trials is in there. Um, yeah, the, the nodding is about 10% ahead. Right, well, that's actually probably a bit more than 10%, isn't it?
0: Well, certainly that figure, but maybe over the course. Yeah, yeah,
1: well, that's an interesting thing the, the two biggest differences we've had were 2018 and 2022, both very dry years. I think that's when disturbed soil struggles more because of the mycorrhizal network having been broken. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm trying to work out. So, you know, I don't know who's looking into this, really. Um, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> but, you know, there hasn't been much work along these lines. And so if you break the mycorrhizal network, that disrupts plants' ability to find moisture. So that's, again, where no-till farmers are, are doing better in dry years, I would say. I'm, you know, I'd be happy to hear anyone else comment on that.
0: No, absolutely. And, and and if you are listening, um, guys, feel free to, to drop me a message. I can pass it on to Charles. Because don't drop me a message expecting me to have an
1: answer because that would be silly in general. Um, well, they, they, can, they, can, they can comment. I, like, I put a lot of posts on Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube and Instagram. So you can find me there as well. And, and I do actually look at pretty much all the comments myself somehow. Um, no, I was I was, I was, was impressed by that because I, mean, I I, don't know if you
0: remember this, but I contacted you maybe about two years ago right at the start of this podcast um, oh, yeah. and uh, you, you didn't have quite have time, which was fine. That's not an issue in the slightest, but uh, I, I maybe commented on like four things and emailed you and all of them you replied to. Uh, so yeah, I was quite impressed by
1: that. Um, oh, i make the effort because I feel it's worthwhile. <laughs> uh, you know, communication with all of us, you know, I think we get further by talking. In fact, at the Oxford Real Farming Conference, a guy, Ollie Rodker who made a preliminary little talk introducing, he said, you know, we're all going to, in the farming world, we need to stick together more, we need to unite more, because there's so many bodies of great people doing different things, and, and they all have different names, <laughs> you know, either belong to one or the other, and, and if we could somehow find a way of unifying a bit more, would be powerful, actually, we, you know, we need power to, because there's big power forces out there which are not healthy for farming in life I think most of us will recognize that and so yeah. yeah we we need to be organized
0: <laughs> no I I'd agree with you and I think you know we've just hit eight billion it's gonna hit it's gonna hit 9 point3 at least in my lifetime 9.5 from what I always learned right. uh yeah and we've got to come up with more more effective ways of producing food in an efficient manner uh that yeah, and quite
1: distribute often, better and distribute you know the whole thing of social equality I think is a big one because that, mm-hmm. that also not helping things so it, you know that's where i think politicians struggle because they don't it's not in their mandate really to stir up a revolution Shall so we say i'm not well, saying that necessarily but you know it's it, 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 the whole picture he's looking at and not just about increasing food production
0: oh yeah you're absolutely right i mean globally the biggest issue is infrastructure especially mm. in all developing yeah. i hate the word developing i no. don't
1: like that a friend just sent me a link to a fantastic compost making initiative in India, uh, Shivash, I think it's called. Okay. And it's um, the guy who made the um, five-hour energy drink. He's suddenly realized he's sitting on a fortune and he's he thought, how can I help the world with my money? You know, nice thought, of a good man. <laughs> and, yeah. and he, he set up a compost making initiatives. He noticed that a lot of farmers were struggling to buy the inputs they needed, like fertilizers. He's helped them to get organized on, instead of burning their waste to actually make compost. And, you know, with the input of a bit of money like that and and help education, it sounds like that's having a big result across a lot of Asia and subtropical climates. So these are good news stories that are happening. We don't hear about them now.
0: And that was Shivash, did you see
1: Shivash, I'm pretty sure. S-H-I-V-A-R-S-H. Yeah, check Shivosh. it out.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I'll there's there's some great things going out the world over i mean slightly different to that but mm-hmm. i filmed with a guy i think it was r2 cast 71 uh, regis umadurinesa who's the food and food and farming policy chair for rwanda i don't know how am i to get in yeah. touch with them. very cool um <clears throat> but he's got a company called the carl group and they've they've basically in rwanda sweet potato is readily available but it's looked down on it's sort of beneath people and uh, they've found this way to create this affordable uh, sweet potato biscuit that is basically affordable to the masses for breakfast and getting that nutrition into everyone Um, and these like these initiatives there's so many out there that we never hear of and it's so cool to hear them so I mean there's
1: another brilliant one in Malawi called Tieni and they're they're helping farmers they've got a big problem of panning so being panned out there from too much um, Mm -hmm. cultivation of the wrong kind and they do the one one big dig to break up the farm. And then they make these deep beds and don't disturb the soil anymore. So that's how I know about it, it's kind of no dig. Right. And it's been really successful. It does use fertiliser, though, because they haven't yet worked out how to get enough organic matter back. So, you know, there's lots to learn still. But it's really, I, I love it when I hear about, you know, successful initiatives like mm. that.
0: Is, is there any place in your form of no dig for inorganic fertilisers? Hey, sorry, for organic fertilisers. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, okay, fair. good question. Good question. Let's let's, for the sake of the discussion, talk on uh, animal waste, so slurries, manures, that sort of thing.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting. You class them as a, yeah, this word, fertilizer. It's it's a difficult word because it rather like composting and like manure. All these words, you know, you've got to define them probably before yeah. talking about them. I would class fertilizer in my in my world. I see it as something as a plant food <laughs> you give to specific plants that you estimate need feeding more. Okay. And for yeah. me, that, that, that way of thinking is not in my lexicon. And, and that's a subtle difference to saying that organic fertilizers, if you like, are bad. I just don't think like that. And what I'm looking at and encourage other people to look at is the soil. So everything starts with the soil, get that right, both the health and obviously nutritional quality. But then you've got, you know, people like uh, Dr Elaine Ingham of the Soil Food Web in, in the USA, who, you know, she, she's a microbiologist, soil scientist, started small, but she's becoming well-known now because she's, she, I was at a conference with her and she said this amazing statement. She said, no soil in the world does not have enough nutrients. In other words, every soil has enough nutrients already. Uh, what is lacking is the biology for plants to access them. You know, that's, that's a statement that revolutionizes how you think, because then you're not thinking, oh, I need to get all the fertilizers and nutrients. You know, I need to work out how to get my soil more alive. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I agree with her 100%. <laughs> you know, there's okay. probably yeah. a few percent of soils where that's not the case. But it's just that way of thinking. Uh, and so looking at getting the boundary right. Do
0: you know, It's, it's fun, funnily enough, I do actually know who Elaine Ingham is. And I honestly think she said one of the funniest statements I've ever seen. She's, oh, yeah. she'll be, I don't know what age Elaine is, but she's, she's older than myself. Let's just say that, right? Uh, and uh, she was very much matter of fact when I watched her on a, a Soil Food Web webinar last year. <clears throat> and uh, she said... Um, Oh, let me get this right. We need to know the truth that soil is the future of regenerative food production. Very much like if a duck quacks, it's a duck. <laughs> I, don't know. I thought that was brilliant, but in the accent, if a oh, quacks, now that's it's quack.
1: what the hell was she meaning?
0: <laughs> I don't know if it was just a matter of fact statement, like if a duck quacks, yeah. it's a duck. If something's regenerative, you've got to look at soil health. Was how I picked it up. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like
1: saying that it <laughs> needs to be. It's an obvious truth. Maybe yeah that is exactly what you're saying. That's exactly what she's saying. Yeah. And um well, she she's nearly 70 actually. You know, I have met her and, and she's a very down to earth, straightforward woman, basically. But she's on her mission, there's no doubt about it. And and actually being really effective, she's got a good team now around her. And and her message of what you're saying, that's how there's more cracking.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. That's
1: it.
0: I, 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 I mean, that stuck with me. And funnily enough, Elaine Ingram's been in my head, and so often I was going to mention it at some point. It's quite nice you mentioned it. Um, maybe the only <laughs> the only person I could have actually name dropped, but you stole it from me. But I'll take that. <laughs> um, so you've you've written, but well, actually, before we got onto books, one more question uh, before that, Charles. You obviously got trials, um, on your allotment,
1: but uh, how many crops are you growing? There's trials, well, <laughs> about 30, probably about 30 different kinds of vegetables. I'm concentrating though for selling on salad, any plant that will make salad leaves. So I grow quite a few lettuce and the chicory, mustard, salad rocket, uh, mizuna, uh, claytonia, winter purslane, chervil, land crests, some slightly more wacky ones. Yeah, uh, Aiming to have a range of salad leaves for sale all year round. And actually even now it's mid January while well, we're talking, uh, we've sold quite a bit actually in the last couple of weeks, and that's from plants which withstood the frost. We had minus nine centigrade here yeah, last December. Um, we managed to get fleece covers over the plants in the polytunnels and greenhouse and keep them in good health. Not only mm-hmm. alive, but actually in good health because where they've got to be. And then when it warmed up uh, before Christmas and since, it, um, you know, we've we had decent production. So yeah. that for me is a big part of what I'm doing commercially. Uh, the, the other thing I'm doing, I'll, I'll just mention one more trial I'm doing actually, which is another yeah, yeah, yeah. trial, and that's looking at growing um, potatoes, broad beans, cabbage and leeks uh, in the same ground every year, so without rotating, basically. Right. A mini rotation, I do potatoes and leeks in the same year, but every year that piece of ground grows second early potatoes harvested mid-July, followed by leeks, and the na- neighbouring bed every year grows broad beans, so November harvested June, transplanted then with cabbage, and that's eight years now. We've just finished doing that, oh no, nine, <laughs> sorry, nine years, um, and, and the, the crops this year have been as good, with one exception, and the potatoes, particularly outstanding, actually, it was the best year ever for potatoes. Right. I've started saving my own seed. So I'm just challenging things, you know, and questioning, and what I think is with no dig, that you, you're getting a healthier soil, and, and, you know, the rule, if you like, of that you have to rotate, uh, it's less important. I'm not saying rotation's a bad thing, there's there's nearly always a place for rotation and it depends what you're growing, where you are, how you're cropping your soil, but it's not as axiomatic as it's made up to be.
0: Well think. It, it's, it's funny you say that because I mean like, the thing that jumps out is <coughs> cabbage was one of the four wasn't it? Yeah, cabbage, bum, yeah. bean, potato and what was the yeah. fourth Leeks. Leeks. Leaks. Leaks. Um, you know, brassica have a, a major one, uh, 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 a rotation-based disease where well if you don't rotate club root becomes a major issue is the one that jumps out. Um yeah, but why why does it jump out? Well that, that that's exactly what my question was going to be. Um
1: yeah why? everybody does that club root well haven't you got any club root why should I have club root who said that it's gonna happen what well, I, I guess my question would be why don't you?
0: Because it's quite a common like, <laughs> thing that that's going to happen. No, I'm genuinely. No, interested. Right. not me. Say, you know that's. Yeah. Genuine-
1: now look, this is really interesting because yeah. how you phrase the question is an indication of how we're thinking. Yeah. And I'm okay, <laughs> going to take this a bit laterally now because it, but it helps to explain where I'm coming from. At least is the, how do we understand disease? You know, you know, there's two theories of of disease. What, you know, define disease. Tell me what it is. And Louis Pasteur won the argument back in the 1900s and his theory, the germ theory, is the one that currently holds sway and that is centered around us and all organisms as defined entities which need protection that we're sterile or pure, defined by our level of what we are and we need protection from viruses, bacteria, uh, everything and that's called germs and so that's you know, most people subscribe to that, I would say. You know, they're worried about bacteria. They want to be clean. Mm-hmm. They'll use bacterial cleaners and, and so on and so forth. And then they worry about viruses. You know, I better not go there. That's all. <laughs> well, I'm,
0: actually, I'm gonna, I'm going to maybe shock you and say I'm one of the ones that don't. And <laughs> um,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. of that? The rival to Pasteur in the, in the late 1900s, sorry, 1800s, was uh, Antoine Béchamp. They're both French as And his, his understanding was that all organisms are biomes, or he had words like microzyme, but basically a collection of microbes. We are a collection of microbes. Us as organisms are held together and defined and maintained through our intelligence, brain, central nervous system, whatever how you describe it. And, and that can adjust our biome or. Um, If we take in enough healthy microbes we can maintain a healthy balance of microbes you know we are a collection of microbes so it's not thinking of us as something that is protecting from microbes we actually need them Uh, and that's right you know the old sayings i'm sure you and many of your listeners will have heard you know we should all eat um it's a pack of soil my mother used to say to me in our lifetime it's for the microbes you know as long as the soil is healthy (laughs) and that builds health and that leads you then to seeing health as a positive state more than just an absence of disease, which is how it's come to be seen. You've got the National Health Service should really be called the National Absence of Disease Service, because that's what it's got to, you know, that's that's where they're struggling to keep going. But if it could be more positive, strong, positive health. And Eve Barfer, who founded the Soil Association, said health is as infectious as disease. Yeah. Well, what a powerful statement. And, and if we start thinking, any of us along those lines, it is empowering. That's literally, and that's where we need to be, because it gives you the power, it gives me, it gives you the power over your own health much more than Pasteur's outlook of defending yourself against you know the potential problem that you can't see. I like that a lot,
0: actually. I really like that. Right. I, I mean, like, I have someone who, did, who doesn't like going to the doctors, doesn't like taking pills here and there, because I feel like that's what we're accepted is how we should do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, so health is a
1: state, it shouldn't yeah. be the absence of disease. Is that yeah. right? and we can maintain it, you know, it links to got this comes back to what you're about, you know, your whole mission in life and, and, and getting healthy food into people. And and that's farming, that's what we want to be doing, that's what I want to be doing. And I'm, yeah. I'm delighted if I see people, for example, I wash my salad leaves before selling them in, in a bucket of rainwater, as far as I'm aware, that's legal. <laughs> that's <laughs> Basically, and then as long as you put on the label uh, rinse before use uh, that classifies it as a food that is not um, with health and hygiene you know people mm-hmm. it's just a vegetable basically so like a selling a carrot or beetroot but it's bagged and, and people I think from what I've seen quite often tip it out on the plate and eat it like it is uh, there's microbes in there <laughs> you know good ones and yes. a lot of my, my shops and restaurants do I supply they say God, your leaves have got amazing storage life and I think it's because they're alive, you know. They they are living. Yeah. That's another nice way of looking at it, you know. And, and and um, but there was a nutritionist about eighty years ago, and he said, um, eat only foods that that rot and decay. But eat them before they do.
0: Okay. <laughs> yes.
1: <a> good maxim. <laughs> In other words, yeah. don't eat processed food. If you have got food in your cupboard, like a Kit yeah. Kat, could be a year old and still looks and tastes the same. Like, mm, that's maybe not a good one. And,
0: and out of interest, I mean, this is quite a quite a, maybe a deep question here. Do you? Purely left by that, or do you still eat, you know, still eat processed
1: foods here and there, or you know, yeah, your, very little processed food. I actually right. avoid them because I'm very well aware that's really unhealthy, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'd like to think that's how I maintain a good state of health. I'm actually type 1 diabetic and I've had that since 1990, I got it when I was about 30, so I have to inject insulin. I'm not free of the, the pharmaceutical yeah. industry, you know, I, I acknowledge them for that. Thank you very much. Um, without insulin. I'd be a conner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure, yeah, a lot of ways of, of healing it is so far. I don't think anyone's done it. I'm not giving up hope. But you know that, that aside, um, I'm feeling in very good health for my age, and that, and a lot of other people have said to me similar things. And you know, again, if you think of health, our whole body, our brain is part of our body, so when you eat really healthy food, micro-rich food, you're enriching your brain and that links to the gut, you know, it's wonderful all this information coming out now about the gut. The gut is one quarter of the brain, the gut biome is the same as the soil biome, you know, they, they work in almost exactly the same microbes if you've got healthy soil. So that comes back again to eating a bit of soil, don't worry about washing carrots and leave a bit of soil and that kind of thing. It's, it's all really beautiful knowledge because it's kind of common sense and and it, it, it frees you up and, and, and it empowers you and makes you more healthy and it gets the brain working because the brain's part of the body and once your brain gets going more you know you can have great conversations like this <laughs> start questioning things
0: well I, I, I sometimes wonder when I speak to people yourself Charles if it is a conversation or if it's me just guiding mm-hmm. someone that knows much more and I'm like yes that makes sense <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> at least I'm learning I'm learning I'm learning um, yeah so you mentioned books, eh, Charles, and for those of you watching on YouTube, which is very much not a massive market of mine at all. Eh, it's much more the, the non-video views. Eh, you will see when Charles goes side to side, there is a YouTube silver plaque there, um, which is eh, for those people that have a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube. So, there's there's been a lot of things you've been involved in media-wise, whether that's books, mm. TV, social media. Over social media, you have over a million followers. Over the three you mentioned, I'm sure pretty pretty bloody near. If you if you're not um when did all that start how did
1: that start (laughs) Uh, i think it was twitter i was on first and that would have been about 2009 Uh, um yeah i i just saw it as a way the lady i was with at the time stephanie Hafty, she was pretty keen on on um getting into that as well she pointed me towards facebook and, and i saw that yeah there's an opening so you know i just went for it and one of the reasons was that I was struggling to get my my message. I, I felt I had a really valid message. No dig, you know, I've been doing it already for 30 years and, and it was giving fantastic results with big savings of time. You know, what not to like? Why wasn't the world embracing it more? And I really feel that even more strongly now with my dig no dig beds side by side and you, you're getting 10% more food every year for the same amount of compost. You know, no dig actually mm-hmm. needs less compost contrary to what you often might hear. It's, and I'm not using any fertilizer or anything. And I think it's, you know, in, in established media, mainstream media, there's a lot of vested interest that in, actually, I'm saying quite a lot of controversial things this evening, hopefully won't sort of get me in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 there's a, a, a sort of status quo that doesn't want too much new knowledge coming out because, you know, it disempowers people who've got strong positions already holding the reins, however you see it, balance of power and, and or, you know, editors and... Um, so social media is brilliant because you can just go straight out to people and, and talk to them and show great results and you don't have to get permission of, of an editor for an article or a magazine mm-hmm. programme, whatever it might be. I mean, YouTube, likewise, like, you know, obviously I'm totally free in what videos I put up there. And, and I love it because I can be creative without anybody sort of interfering with that.
0: And it's... it's. Um, I, I haven't I don't, I told don't do you this, Charles, but I've got a, a very deep interest in social media, to the point I've already drafted up a proposal for a PhD um, oh. based on, on, on food production and social media, sort of the impact of social media
1: influencers on food production in the that UK. That's a really interesting topic. I think it's enormous. Yeah, yeah it's impact. huge. It's huge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, what, what I love about it is you're so international by default. So I get these amazing comments from people in India, the Philippines, Chile, uh, Utah, um, Canada, all over the world, yeah. uh, even, and, and really positive, and and uh, the, the one, one thing that's shining through is how the no-dig principles that I explained at the beginning, that leaving soil alone and feeding the, life, the soil life, you know, that applies worldwide. It's the details that vary more, and, and people are having fun, you know, because I'm encouraging people to be creative, that's how you learn, and uh, yeah, great feedback. Well, <laughs> so, it's, it's interesting, I mean, like, I've been um... I think
0: this year a podcast was watched or listened to in forty nine countries, um, and it, I mean the view. Your views aren't through the roof. I've had about about a hundred I think I had hundred and twenty five thousand yesterday. Non video views and about quarter of a million video. But I, I've sort of went away from YouTube. I promoted it for a while and paid a promoter, but more focused on the non video ones. But um Yeah, well, it is, it is. there's a guy in Singapore that absolutely loves every episode. I don't think he's missed one. Um, no, on, 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 on uh, oh, I don't think it's just one. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> it's so interesting. And, and, I, and I said, you know, over the last maybe ten or fifteen, I've started taking people in like yourself, and, and I'm sure you'll have heard of uh, Media Ben Ben Cross, the um, Media growing bright, and maybe maybe you have, maybe you have. <laughs> uh, bringing him on, I mean, something that I have no idea about, you know, and, okay, and sort yeah. of things. Amazing. And with that, I'm trying to get someone who's based in every country on the planet is the goal uh, which basically gives me a long-term goal it means I'm not stopping the podcast next week you know that's, that's uh, <clears throat> so that's that's the long-term thing um but but you you've you've got this sort of following and 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 I like the idea that it's the way I see it as well there's you don't have to check with someone what you post okay you're not an idiot I'm not an idiot you're not going to put something out there that's going to cause you a problem or, or it might cause you a bit of a problem you know because you you you're being that sort of that that barrier breaker, if you will. But there's there's a way you can sort of look after yourself, um, and yeah, I've always been quite a fan quite a fan of your pages, mainly mainly of Instagram, Facebook, just just 'cause what I use. But um, yeah. So if you if you somehow don't follow Charles and you follow me, be sure to check out uh, the, the Facebook, Instagrams, and YouTube because they are good. Um. There's one question I have, uh, Charles. I finish every, every podcast with two questions, but there's one question uh, that's been on my mind the whole time and I keep forgetting to ask you. When you're mentioning compost, are you talking store-bought compost or your own? Are you making your own compost? I assume you don't have enough to make your own, but that could be wrong. I, might have,
2: you know. yeah. I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2Cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug... The sponsors of the show today, the Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. How long have
1: we got? <laughs> um, I make as much compost as I can and what I make is enough for about two-thirds roughly of what I use, uh, but having said that, some of what I make the compost with is material I bring in, such as wood chip, so we'll, uh, preferably in small pieces we'll leave it for a Eight, eight months or so to mature and and then we'll put, run the lawnmower over it actually to chop it up even more sometimes it turns almost into a brown powder and I'm using that as a brown material in the summer when we've got a lot of grass clippings for example so uh, yeah I'm bringing in stuff and I can make quite a lot and I'm doing some worm composting but at the moment I'm mainly doing what some people call hot composting but I don't make it very hot I don't want to go above 60 centigrade too much I've got seventy sometimes. Depends how much you green matter you put in. Because I want a, a decent fungal bacterial uh, balance. Uh, and I, again, I don't want to be too about this, but you know, if you compost hop all the time, it is more bacterial. Uh, it's still good compost, but it's just different. I think you get more health from one with a bit more fungi. And so that's also where the worm compost comes in a bit and the wood chips on the pathways. And yeah, well I think that's it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah I, no, buy in, that's perfect. I buy buying a bit of compost. I buy in a bit of mushroom compost, a bit of green waste compost. And actually I'm also pleased to be doing that because it gives me an insight into what other people are are using. So I get so many questions about, you know, why does this compost not behave as I expected? You know, mostly because it's like well, it's often sold too fresh, actually. You know, green okay. waste compost is classic one. It's good in the end, but when you get take delivery of it, it's probably hot and Um, hydrophobic so it's not going to hold water that's just because it's Mm -hmm. too fresh they sell it too fresh but they can't afford to hang on to it for ages before (laughs) that kind of thing so if you've got a bit of space to store compost in your area then it's good to buy it before you need it and then one last one I'll mention is um, animal manure which is basically compost once it's decomposed you know they're all compost in the end anything a leaf mold would be another one Um, tree waste until recently, anyway, tree waste are one of the purest and least worrying in terms of chemical residue, but animal manure has become problematic. Um, not so much for things like antibiotics, which I reckon do break down and uh, yeah. so compost life can do that, but it's this bloody weed killer, Paralid, uh, which is trade name in UK, I think it's things like Forefront, and it's also got oh, yeah. cloparalid, amino paralid. it's got into lawn killer um, weed lawn weed killer, you know, if, if anyone listening has got a lawn, don't use any weed killer, don't use feed and weed, it might have this horrible poisoning and you could get it killing your potatoes next year, you know, because these clippings don't break down, the what the active ingredient doesn't break down in a heap. It breaks down actually from what we're finding out when the compost or manure that's got it in uh, is spread on the surface and sunlight can degrade it, that's the best. And also microbes, soil microbes break it down, so don't rotate it in because that kills the microbes, just leave it on top and They'll do the work for us. So that's the one caveat. It's such a pity because otherwise animal manure is great.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that was kind of why I asked the question earlier. That makes sense now, it makes much more sense. And there's one one more thing I actually forgot to ask as well that I had considered throughout. Um, you you mentioned the insect calamity earlier on, was I think the term you said. Uh, Um, tell us what you mean by that. I've got a feeling I know what you're uh, talking
1: about, Liz here. I wish (laughs) I knew more. I don't need anyone's interested, check out the work of Professor David Goulson at Sussex University, and he's written books about it. I know, he'd be a good person for you to interview, I reckon. He's a great guy, and I wanted to listen to his talk at the Oxford conference, and unfortunately, I was involved in the talk myself at the same time, so I couldn't get across there, but I think it's online. I need to have a look. Um, I was doing a talk, actually, I was part of a panel with Vandana Shiva, and popular culture and we were talking about how to get online learning out to people and make make it more accessible free Mm -hmm. online learning we do contributed videos for free to this new platform called earth with a d on the end and that or earth initiative initiative earth uh there's a lot of really good things like this going out but yeah the just going back to the insect calamity i mean that i don't know how bad it is but i think it is it's worrying me I, i i'm not the kind of person who worries too much, because otherwise you just spend your life worrying and not. <laughs> but on the other hand, if we get to a point of not many insects, that's not good.
0: Um, just what you're saying about sort of sharing, sharing knowledge there, and, and trying mm. to get that. Perfect. Have you heard a skill cedar? I don't know if that's one that came up
1: yourself. Oh, that's interesting. I like that phrase. What what is it? Skill cedar. Uh-huh.
0: Um, there, there's it's basically a. Uh, an app free is probably not the case but it's it's not expensive let's say you want to learn about let's just use no dig for example um if you can prove to the app that you're well-knowledged in it well versed in it you can sort of put seminars on and so on and 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 people can access that and i think you as the expert let's say whatever the word is i don't really like the word expert but i think if we're talking about no dig there's not really many folk better than yourself um uh you can you can choose a fee but I think a lot of people just share the sort of content they have, but uh, so, yeah. ah, well, thank you for that. I'll have a look. Yeah. I've not used Skillseeder before, but I have. I have been asked to sort of put PowerPoints on and stuff like that, and just because my contract it's not something oh, yeah. I can do. You know, it's it's a thing that. <laughs> it's a, yeah. um, no, listen, Charles. I, it's been a great chat. I, I genuinely, when I bring folk on like yourself, I've mentioned it. I'm like, gee, I hope I do this? I hope I do this sort of um, do it justice. Uh, but I think you've done yourself justice. Some fantastic information in there. Um, mm-hmm. I know for a fact my mum will still be listening in because she is an avid gardener. Uh, loves loves gardening, and, and as here is a very good gardener. So I hate that I'm saying that, but um, I'm sure she'll have taken some tips away as well. Uh, and and there will be other folk listening doing the exact same. But there's two questions I, I finish every podcast with. Mm. Um, the first one's where do you see yourself in five years, and the second one is if you'd any tips for folk getting into and let's do market gardening or no dig. Uh, what would they be
1: uh okay so in five years ah i don't know i I, i'm an organic grower so i'll i'll go with the flow and see what (laughs) just come up but i i would like to have an even bigger audience actually i feel that i i can help a lot of people and i think there's huge challenges ahead and uh, you know i reckon what i can the information i can give is, is very appropriate for the times we're coming into um so yeah i'm hoping that will be really up there and work very well known and then what was your second question i didn't quite understand it if,
0: if you had tips for folk coming into so normally it's if you had tips for folk coming into firing what would you be um if, the, if you had tips for folk coming into or, or getting involved in, in no dig what would they be so uh, advice for getting into what you were doing
1: i guess oh, okay gosh um that's That's quite challenging, actually, because especially in the UK, I think finding land, you know, that's (laughs) not easy, is it? Um, So I'll assume that you've got a bit of land. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Oh, Craigie, Two things. Uh, Well, have a second string to your bow. You know, what I was saying about the, I'm I'm talking about small scale horticulture here. It's it's very difficult to to be profitable enough that you're going to make enough money that you'll still be doing it in 10 years. You know, I know a lot of people who, managed for a few years, but in the end, it's a bit of a grind down. Because if you're not clearing much profit, uh, you know where's your future. Yeah. And so, if if you have a, if you do it maybe in a smaller way, but have another income on the side. Uh, that that's the sort of way I'd, I'd recommend anyone looking at it at the moment. Um, sorry, it's, it's not
0: positive. No, it's it's always the big challenge. I mean, whether it's whether it's large gear farming small right. you know large-scale agriculture small-scale okay. horticulture. the biggest okay. challenge is getting that ground and it, it's it's yeah. about as hard as it's ever been at the minute and that's not even owning that's rent as well
1: yeah um, I, I think <laughs> community farming of some kind could be the way um you know so getting more people involved and and sharing skills you know that's what you were just talking about yeah and um like you know i worked with an amazing woman actually called Kate Forrester who's uh, worked here for a couple of years. She was a chef in London and got disillusioned with that and, and realised now that actually the core is healthy food where it all comes from. And she um, she's got into it but she's very good. She's she's renting four acres near Ringwood and she's excellent at getting more people involved in helping her. <laughs> and, and it's giving people who wanted to do a bit of outside work, you know, Old ladies even do uh, you know. I don't mean that. in it through, <laughs> <way>, you know. Don't <laughs> the <laughs> bar for an hour or two. That sort of thing, and that's making yeah. them happy, and it? it's helping out. So yeah, if you can find that key
0: community. No, but and there's a lot, there's a lot of brilliant community uh, sort of gardens out there, and and I mm. think sometimes yeah. there's maybe the 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 opinion that not everyone's in them, and they're they're sort of just there for a short period. But there's some brilliant yeah. ones out there where folk are committed.
1: Absolutely, and I'll just mention that we. I, I write a weekly newsletter it's a paid you pay five pound a month <laughs> it's very good value to get a, a, a newsletter every week of advice what to do this week in your in your garden or market garden and for community gardens we do it free so if, if there's only of you listening you can see on my website how to apply
0: excellent well thank you for that well there's there's two
1: there's two i'll be aware of i the
0: Aaron pioneer project and the kpt community trust will be the two that i assume oh, yeah. will be like, i've been involved in in the past Great. <laughs> um, but no brilliant really good um and wallace
1: i've just brought out a book for children i must just mention that no <laughs> is that aimed at me is that what you're saying <laughs> yes, coming out this week 19th january uh, official date uh no dig children's gardening book and it it's my that's my wish you know that'd be one of the things the five-year question uh get more kids in because that's the future and they really get no dig. you know it makes a lot of sense they haven't got anything to unload and it does make sense. So, yeah, uh, when I'm teaching, it's one of my favourite phrases I hear is, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I know that if someone says that, they've got it. <laughs> and, yeah, you, well, that, and, and working with
0: or teaching kids is one of the most rewarding things on the planet. Like you say, like, they've got they've yeah. no prejudice, they've got no whatever, and, and it's yeah. great. You know they might go and hear something tomorrow and think, Well, that makes more sense, but it's brilliant to see that sort of thing.
1: And really challenging, can be, not it? Because you know, that'll, yeah. that'll be the, the eye of <laughs> And I, I was actually I took a little class of 14 year olds um, back in October on the Isle of Wight, and that, that was one of my more more difficult teaching missions. <laughs> they <laughs> were really uninteresting, uninterested most of the time, but the teachers, when they went back to the class, it was quite a positive message. Yeah, you know, I think 14 year olds, bless you if you're listening, you know, but they're very good at
0: appearing uninterested even if they are <laughs> trust me as a lecturer i'm well aware and i'm teaching oh, okay. <laughs>
1: i'm teaching into high
0: school he does it through work as well so right. no i know what you're talking about you've got you've got to sort of cool. go out the box sometimes to make it fun um no listen Charles, but absolute pleasure i appreciate you coming on hope you've enjoyed it yourself very much uh, thank you ho- hopefully my questions haven't been too useless uh, <laughs> oh
1: really, really good good Mark. Good
0: <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad for those of you listening guys we talked about teaching kids there uh, if you want to te- check out r2cast 70 r2cast 74 and r2cast 76 which has actually went out about 10 minutes ago at the point of recording Um, that's with countryside learning scotland luke ablett and reir shanarin um the, f- the first and the third are two charities aimed at sort of getting Rural education into schools and and sort of vice versa, schools out to rural sector, very um, very much based in farming, uh, countryside learning in Scotland, very much based in the every rural sector, whether that's estate management, whether that's farming, whether that's horticulture, they, they are sort of involved. Um, And then Luke Ablett is a a farmer himself that that looks at doing the same thing, just himself. Uh, So those are some three examples there. We'll see you next week (coughs) for uh, Blythe Aitken, who's based in Zimbabwe, from Zimbabwe, uh, but has ties to Scotland. And is as I said earlier, um, a blueberry agronomist. So again, (laughs) a nice chat for me to not understand the thing. Um, And then I think the the podcast after that is going to be uh, Impossible Brew, which is a a beer making company that is non-alcoholic, um, but still, this is what I don't get. I haven't filmed this yet. Uh, you still get the the benefits of beer from it. That's what that's what the, the 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 website says. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that means. I'm looking forward to what the benefits are. Uh, and uh, yeah, but we'll see you then. Hope you enjoyed another episode, and we'll see you for R2 Cast eighty four. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2
2: Cast. I just want to take this moment to quickly thank our primary sponsors once more, Aplan Rural. If you follow A-Plan on social media, you'll see the work they're doing to really promote British farming and back our industry. It's been a pleasure working alongside A-Plan Rural so far, and long may it continue. The values of A-Plan Rural runs perfectly in line with the whole mantra of Rural to Kitchen, and I'm glad to have them on board. Check them out on Instagram at A-Plan Rural, and on Facebook at A-Plan Rural Insurance. See you for the next podcast.